Oh, all right. This Stack Overflow election is going to end before this podcast makes it up, so we won't even talk about it. Yeah. We can reveal the winner to be aired two weeks after everyone knows. Okay, so far this is terrible. We haven't started yet. <laughs> this might be the worst podcast. <laughs> we haven't done. started yet. Okay, now start it. You're listening to Stack Exchange Podcast number 45. I'm Joel Spolsky, your host, and today we have special guest Eric Lippert. Hey, Eric. Hey, Joel. How's it going? Very well, very well. Well, we'll introduce you in a minute, along with the usual David Fullerton. Yep. And Jay Hanlon. Good afternoon. And producer Alex in the background. Hola. And yeah, Eric is a fairly famous contributor on Stack Overflow. He's written thousands of answers. Did I just make that up? No, it's it's thousands. Well, it's over a thousand. Let's go. Let's look. Let's look it up right now. Eric Lippert has two thousand two hundred and thirty-two answers. Holy goodness! On Stack Overflow. Wow. And I'm sorry. And twenty-eight of them are still open. The rest have been closed. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure what you've been doing. But you have not asked any questions though, so you're not really pulling your weight there on the Zero. question asked. He's asked questions on Meta though, if I recall. Not a okay. lot, but a couple. And he's, I think I've uh, asked two on Meta. Uh, well known, uh, Eric. I don't even. Did you do anything before you worked at Microsoft? You were sort of famous for a lot of the languages at Microsoft: BB, BB Script, JavaScript, and C Sharp. That's right. I came to Microsoft right out of college. Uh, I went to the University mm-hmm. of Waterloo, which has a cooperative education program. Yep. So before I was at Microsoft full time, I was at Microsoft as an intern through that program, and then before that, I was at a company called Watcom, which is in Waterloo. Wait, do they make uh, the Fortran compilers from uh, they did. 1963 or something? Whoa. They Watt did. 4, Watt 5. Yep, they made, a, uh, wow. they made a Fortran compiler, and they made a really high-quality C and C++ compiler. I worked on none of those. I, uh, they also made a database well, you weren't, product. You weren't even alive, I, I hate to say. Watt, Watt 4, which yep. was in, like, 1961, probably. I, I'm just guessing here. was Waterloo Fortran, and then yep. Watt 5 was Waterloo Fortran 4. Right. <laughs> W-A-T was Waterloo, F is Fortran, and I-V is 4, so Watt 5 is Waterloo Fortran 4, which is, Waterloo Fortran 4 was sort of a new version of Fortran that had all kinds of advanced features like floating point and stuff. (laughs) Amazing, you could multiply as well as add. Yes, they also had a version of BASIC called Waterloo BASIC that uh, was available for the Commodore PET, and I actually had a Commodore PET with Waterloo BASIC on it uh, when I was, good lord, I must have been 11 Wow, something something like that. Was was the pet better than the 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 Amiga? Was it? What was the the pet? <laughs> no, no, it was much earlier, much earlier than Amiga. <laughs> it, it was. Yeah. It was. Uh, I did have a pet and an Amiga at one <laughs> at one point. I always wanted a dog. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's too early to talk about huskies. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, I worked at Wacom, uh, and I worked on a product called Wacom SQL, which is a little database product. And it is now Sybase SQL Anywhere, I think, uh, is what it's called now. No kidding. That, was, that, that survived for a long time. That was sort of a way to get SQL. It was like synchronization, right? So it would like synchronize multiple SQL databases from point to point. Yeah, yeah, there was some some synchronization tool there. This this was all when I was very young, and I don't remember the details now. I, I want to say that it allows you to do things like run SQL on like mobile phones and stuff like that, but that's just impossible because they didn't even have phones at the time. On beepers. <laughs> <laughs> Alphanumeric pagers. No idea what I was thinking of. But I, th- I think actually in those days, that like when SQL Anywhere got started, like laptops weren't really full-powered machines, and so having SQL that could run on... DOS or something was was uh, uh, was sort of a major uh, advancement. Okay, so this is all a long time ago, but more recently, much more recently, he has I been was, at Microsoft. You've been at Microsoft, on. and you worked on uh, VB, which I worked on. That's right. 
You worked on VB script. Did you guys know each other? Did you I think I arrived today? after Joel left. You say even but after my we, time. We've allocated youngin. 20 minutes for you guys asking if you, if you respectively know someone that the other person worked with. Oh, so yeah. you know him. <laughs> How far up the org chart do you have to go? Well, I never saw any of Eric's check-ins, but he probably saw some of mine. So there. That's probably the case. I started working uh, on VB as an intern in 94. Okay, that's right, when I was leaving. Yeah. Fair enough. I worked on, I didn't, I actually, I was on the Excel team, so I don't really count, but we were putting VB into Excel, and I, um, I, I like to take credit for persuading the VB team to add for each, which was mm -hmm. a, the, uh, you know, the enumeration construct. What else did I convince them to add? A width. The, uh, the width. width. Yeah, the width statement. statement. Yeah. And the whole I dispatch thing, because uh, we needed variants. We needed, you know, which what became the variant data type so that things could change their, the type of things that they held. Otherwise, you could not fetch a value out of a cell on a spreadsheet and store it in a variable in Visual Basic because it could be a number or a string. Right. So you were, you were working with, like, Doug Franklin and Andrew Solomon and those guys on that, I think. Uh, I guess. Yeah. One forgets. I just sort of would send over memos saying we need this. or we. It was fun in those days because it's like the Excel team. It was like Joel Spolsky who was memos? like. I was like, these are actually 20. printed memos, no. and you, you gave it to a page to, <laughs> I think, to run it over to the I'm, other building. I'm guessing it was email, but I'm also guessing that Microsoft in those days had a different word for email because uh, they had a different word for everything. So, uh, uh, no, it, it was email. Not, now you made me forget my whole train of thought. Mm. It was strange because I would send over a thing saying, hey, I, you should have uh, for each. That was for each was taken from Seashell, which was the first place I had seen it um, on Unix, where you could do something to every file in a directory using the syntax for each. I don't think Pascal had for each. No, Pascal had with. And I wanted with because you were constantly having to do the same thing to multiple, do multiple things to the same object. Excel's that program where I can make a calendar for myself, oh, right? Oh, dear. No, it's a... That's right. It's like a database. <laughs> ah, yeah. Oh, I see the connection. So you could use that, that SQL thing that Joel was talking about earlier to, uh, to find stuff in the database in Excel. Have we started yes. the podcast yet? <laughs> I really hope not. Welcome! <laughs> And then, Eric, you went to work on VBScript. When I started full-time at Microsoft, I worked on VBScript and JScript yeah, for many years. Wow. VBScript has, uh, uh, in my mind, the worst feature of that. Like, well, all right, let's do this. Let's, let's play this game. What is the worst feature in VBScript? Oh, good heavens. Um, well, I could, I could name you, you know, any number of ways that uh, the VBScript differs in subtle ways from, uh, from Visual Basic. That was confusing. Yeah. But if I had to name a worst feature, the fact that calling uh, com objects uh, and passing by ref uh, variables can leak memory, that, that was a bad one. Uh, oh, is that no word? Wait a minute. I didn't even know that. <laughs> That's not even a feature. <laughs> passing by ref. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you mine. This is oh, my sure, favorite sure. one. Let's... My favorite one. And I know this because I had to write a VBScript compiler. I didn't really yeah. have to. I merely had to instruct various summer interns to write script compilers at Frog Creek. Uh, my favorite is that if you put an A less than and then a number and then a right then. So you've got some A left banana, one right banana. So A sub one could mean any of, I think, about 10 different things. Oh, yeah. It could either mean call the function named A passing the, the value one. It could mean there is an array called A and retrieve its first element or its second element, either of those. Yes. It could mean that A is an object, call its default method passing the value one, right? Oh, yeah. It could mean A is an object, call its default method, which returns an array, and then look up the first element of that array. Mm -hmm. And I'm missing 
probably nine different things that that could mean. And it was a combination of the fact that you used parentheses for both function calls and subscripts, and the fact that at some point somebody, uh, I think me, decided that it was a really good idea if you should have a default uh, property on everything. If you did not actually specify what property you wanted, but merely mentioned the object, then it would look up the default property. And then the fact that you've got properties and methods, and they're all sort of mixed up. So that became something that only at runtime could you figure out anything even remotely like what that meant. Right. And, and that, that was a vexing feature. Uh, I, I totally, totally agree with you. Uh, but it sort of comes out of one of the design principles of Visual Basic and, and hence VBScript, which was, you know, even if the, the theory is not really that well-founded, you, know, mm -hmm. you know, sort of programming language theory, try to figure out what the user meant, right? And, and try to do the right thing. <laughs> VB programmers and VBScript yeah. programmers tend to view the compiler as the thing that's in their way, not the thing that's helping them, Yeah. right? And so you want to have the language, like, try to sort of fail to the mode of doing what's usually do the right something. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, those rules that you describe, I had to write the IntelliSense engine for those rules. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, you should see the comments that I left in the code there, you know, explaining all of the different paths, that, you know, whereby you could say, okay, well, we've, somebody has just hit a, a, a paren, right? Right. What could this mean, right? What, what do we have to display now? That, that uh, seems yeah, almost uh, impossible. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and the uh, the case that you missed was uh, parens are used in a method call to indicate that a, a variable should be passed by value, not by reference. Oh, I thought that was just an accident of the fact that when you wrapped something in parens, you caused it to be evaluated. It is an accident, but yeah. it's an accident that people take advantage of and ended up being documented. There was also the subtle difference between. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that subs and functions are different things. So uh, A sub one uh, or A left paren one, right paren, could either be calling the sub A passing one as a value or calling, calling the function A with one as an argument. They're actually different things. They, they are. Oh, they actually, are. let me and give you a case where it's different. So if you say A sub B, all right, I'm using the old, old basic programmer's uh, system of using sub to mean left paren. A left paren, B right paren could either mean evaluate B and then pass it by value to the subroutine A, or it could mean call the function A passing B by reference. Right. And it was very confusing, which, which was which. And, and I, actually, that was one of the very first blog articles I wrote mm -hmm. uh, was about the, the error message, cannot use parentheses when calling a sub. Right? <laughs> People would ask me all oh, the time, I had that yesterday. what does that error message mean? And I would tell them it means you can't use parentheses when okay. calling a sub. Right, like this is totally taking me back to the bad so, old days. But, but what you had to do is you had to I stick the word to... "call" there, and that would fix it, right? Yes, yes. So well, <laughs> if while you call this up with the word "call," oh yeah. my goodness. So while we're on the subject of uh, of stuff that uh, is messed up in uh, in VBScript, uh, a couple more things have come to mind. Uh, soft types. If you have a comparison between two variables, it's between two variants, right? Mm -hmm. Then the comparison semantics are different. Uh, if it's two variables, then if it's a variable and a string, or a variable and a, um, a, a numeric literal. That right? surprises me. Uh, it is surprising to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought uh, I knew this language. Wow. Yeah, no, VBScript does not, <laughs> uh, and you know, more generally VB, uh, does not obey the sort of design principle of late-bound languages, which is that the late-bound version does what the early-bound version would have done 
had you known the type information at early binding time. No, because that, because the, the late bound is it's just doing that by having a type, which is a variant type. So it is actually bound. <laughs> it's just everything's bound to a, a variant in VBScript. Yeah. Uh, and one more thing, um, you know, uh, that's messed up in uh, in early versions of VB uh, and VBScript uh, is the fact that assigning a uh, reference mm -hmm. requires set keyword. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love <sighs> that. No, but they, didn't somebody remove that at some point? Yeah, that was removed from VB, yeah. VB.net. VB.net, which is almost even and, worse. And from Wasabi. <laughs> and Wasabi, we took that out of our, our, our variant of VB script that we wrote here. Oh, my goodness. These I are, forgot. You, know, you wrote, it was yeah. dim object colon set, ob, set object equals. You equal. always have to say dim a colon set a equals yeah. new. And colon was whatever. just a way to put two statements on one line. Right, Ugh. right. Yeah, I forgot. I I deliberately forgot all of this. I think this is, <laughs> this my brain. This is this is my brain protecting me from the past. We have <laughs> we have one other one other suggestion for worst BB feature. Yeah, uh, from our chat room, which is on error resume next. Oh, on error, big pain in the ass. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. So so for our non-programmer listeners, that one says, if something blows up, just keep going. Yeah. Don't just ignore it and keep, keep going. It's okay. I know that this happens. <laughs> the the, the non-programmer listeners have already tuned out. <laughs> this, is, this is like the DVD director's commentator for, for VB. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is, uh, we this have, is special. So here's a, more, here's a more philosophical question, uh, Eric. It seems to me like the, some of the most popular languages in the world historically have been over time. I mean, languages like PHP, VBScript, VB. Java is an exception. But I want to say that the most popular languages of all time, and JavaScript right now, were the ones that were designed in a rush and which have major design flaws that you kind of wish you could have gone back and fixed, but then you can't because of backwards compatibility. Yeah, I have very frequently noticed this. And it's, it's <laughs> kind of one of these worse is better things, right? Yeah. Where you, you get something out that works uh, and it's you know kind of been designed on a rainy weekend in Seattle, mm -hmm. but it's out there and people start using it. And then you end up with this situation where you can't go back and fix the problems because now people are depending on it. Right. Like, I believe the history of VBScript is that there was sort of a political rush to come up with a, another language to match JavaScript that would presumably be more familiar to the VB programmers. And so it was just an attempt to strip out things from, from Visual Basic. Like, oh, yeah. Like types. yeah. And, and a, literally, a couple of guys worked on it over a rainy weekend in Seattle, yeah. and they, they came up with something that you know, worked pretty and, well. And rather than saying, let's make a dynamic language, they just said, let's eliminate all data types except for variant. Right. Without realizing the implications of that and, and uh, <laughs> or possibly realizing them. PHP, I think, is the worst one because I think one of the things I noticed about PHP, if you look closely, the designers of the language did not understand why there was a set keyword in Visual Basic. Right. They just didn't get why you needed such a thing. And therefore, they created all kinds of problems for themselves with reference versus value semantics that have persisted to this day to be confusing and annoying features of PHP. Right. And, and the reason that set was there is because of default values. I'm already starting to forget why now. <laughs> yeah. You have, to know what, you have to know whether something is an object or uh, w whether or not you want to retrieve the default value of the object, whether something's an object or a value. You have to, you have, to have some, some clue from the programmer whether this thing is an object that you want to treat as a reference to the object or whether this thing is a value type and you want to retrieve the default value. Right. Yeah. And you, you compare that to say, to say JavaScript, which certainly has its flaws. You know, I can, mm -hmm. I can point out flaws in JavaScript, you know, all, all day if you want. Um, but it is much more sort of a theoretically well-founded language. Mm -hmm. um, it was also yeah. rushed out there. Oh, oh, it was, it was. Yeah. 
but at least you know people who were working on it, like you know, like Brendan and uh, mm-hmm. and Walter Horwat and those guys, did have a pretty strong understanding of you know, of programming languages and and you know what you know what makes a a well designed programming language. Right. Uh, Waldemar once told me that he viewed JavaScript as common Lisp with the syntax of Java. Yeah. To say, well, the syntax for Java was the second stage. The first step, it, it looked a lot more like Scheme, I think. Yeah. Before, I mean, long, this was before it ever shipped. But then there was some kind of a deal between Netscape and Sun, and it became a political imperative to make it look a little bit like Java, sort of, so it could be called Java, even though it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, The um, one of the questions that I got most frequently when I was um, you know, answering, before Stack Overflow came along, when I was answering questions on you know, comp-lang Java or whatever, or mm-hmm. comp-lang JavaScript, you know, was what's the relationship between Java and JavaScript? And the answer is, well, there's a marketing relationship between them. You mm-hmm. know, they'll tell you, oh, well, we called it JavaScript because you can script your Java programs. Who out there uses JavaScript <laughs> to script Java programs? I don't know uh, if you even could then, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it was a very strange thing to claim. It seems like a marketing campaign that was sort of invented by marketing people that didn't really, I mean, it, it, it serves no marketing purpose. Right. So Eric, as you talk about switching to Stack Overflow, let's get in the mind of Eric Clipper. Um, we, oh, we talk a lot. I don't think I can handle it. <laughs> I don't know what David's envisioning, but, uh, we, we talk a lot. If you, I think we've, maybe we've talked in the podcast for, if you ever, as soon as you try to explain what we do to anybody, to my relatives, et cetera, it, it always ends the same way with some question of whether we are answering questions all day and how I got competent in answering programmers questions or who we pay, what team of underage children somewhere we pay to sit at computers and answer programming questions. And as you walk through it, they get increasingly more confused. You go, no, 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 we don't give them money or we don't do it ourselves. People just do it and we give them points. And then they, we get into this. Well, how do they trade in their points? Is it like skee-ball? Is there a list? And what do you do with these points? You go, no, no, the points allow you to do more on the site. You can actually go and like edit other people's questions and clean things up and you get more power from these points. And they go, oh, so you give them fake points they can use to work more <laughs> for you for what? And... <laughs> Over time, they don't understand at all. But what I'm sort of interested in is I'm intrigued to hear what got you started participating, not not reading as much as participating initially, and what brings you back today. Uh, I, I have sort of a I have a theory of what drives people, but I won't, I won't give it away yet. What when you first started answering questions, say, what made you want to do it? I mean, people go to look all the time, but what made you want to start giving people answers? That's a good question. Um, so first off, to you know to address your your thing about the points, you know, it's it's like whose line is it anyway? Right, everything's made up, and the points don't matter. Exactly. What brought me to Stack Overflow uh, in the beginning was uh, something that one of my very early managers at Microsoft told me, uh, which was, you know, he said to me, "I want you to be a recognized industry expert on something." Right, and since we work on the JavaScript team at Microsoft, that would probably be a good thing, right? Uh, but don't don't pick something that's too big. Right, like, don't try to be the recognized industry expert on you know, the whole thing. Right, um, you know, pick something, pick some aspect of it, like you know, the semantics of the language. And uh, and so I was like, okay, well, how do I do that? And he said, every you know, find a source of questions, answer every question you know the answer to that's in that domain. And if there's a question in that domain that you don't know the answer to, make it your business to find out. Uh, and that attitude has served me wow. extremely well. Cool. Who is that? Uh, Who is that manager? Uh, his name was Chris Waite, and he is he not at Microsoft anymore. I don't think I, I run into him every now and then. You know, Seattle's a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen him for a few years. But that's 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 kind of cool. Long, long before we had a careers product, right? And part of that is sort of a, a place where we try to 
encourage programmers to show off what they've kind of shared and what they know mm-hmm. or they're, you know, for getting jobs, et cetera. Your manager sort of saw, not us, but as this, this notion, this kind of thing as what you ought to be doing is finding a place where you can establish credibility as an expert in this field. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah, and a great way to do that is to answer people's questions. And the the wonderful side effect of that is every time there was a question that I didn't know the answer to, I made it my business to find out, and pretty soon I was an expert. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so that's cool, and that that raises an interesting sort of follow up because I I think it's you you no longer uh, I think are, are struggling to try and convince people that you are say a valid expert in C sharp <laughs> or these other topics, there seems to be a, a fairly general consensus that that's the case. What makes you, I mean, you continue to be a, a re, really active participant. What what brings you back to do it today? Well, I'm no longer at Microsoft, but while I was at Microsoft, there were kind of three things. One, you know, continuing that process of, of becoming an expert. Two, Microsoft uh, at the time was very, very much encouraging everybody to have meaningful, real customer interactions, you know, on an ongoing basis. And so that was that was a great way to do that. That was the generation of the MSDN blogs, I think, that were uh, highly encouraged. Right. Kind of every single, like literally everyone at Microsoft had a blog on, on, on MSDN blogs. Right. There were tens of, tens of thousands of blogs, and many of them only had two or three posts in them. Yeah, but some of them were great. I, mean, I learned oh, a lot. Yeah, some those. of them were absolutely fabulous, yeah, yeah. Uh, and continue to be fabulous today. So, yeah, so there was the fact that I was being encouraged to to do that kind of work and be paid for it. And the third thing was, uh, it's excellent customer research, right? Every time somebody asks a question on Stack Overflow about C Sharp, it's because that's a smart person who is confused by some aspect of programming, you know, some some aspect of using a tool that I'm making to try to make their lives better. Right? <laughs> and if they're being confused by it, then there's an opportunity there for them to be educated and for me to realize how it was that I failed to design a tool that was easy to use. So I no longer work at Microsoft, so a couple of those reasons have, uh, have fallen, have fallen at, um, you know, off, the, uh, off the radar there. Uh, but I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy hearing people's uh, questions, and uh, I now work for a company that does static analysis of source code looking for people's bugs. Coverity. And, uh, for coverity, yep. yes. And... To tell tell the people what static analysis is. Ah, so so static analysis. Because that keyword, uh, the static keyword, is used for all kinds of crap in programming right. languages these days. It's, right, it means everything. Yeah. So what I mean by by static analysis is the kind of analysis that a really good compiler does. Mm. So the compiler takes in the source code and it first of all figures out is this even a legal piece of text? Is it actually a legal C sharp program? Right. Right. And if it is, then it generates object code at the back end or IL or wh- whatever it does. Right. It 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 translates it into a, into some kind of other language. Uh, but on the way, good compilers also produce warnings as they go and say, well, hey, you know, it looks like you might be using some idiom of the language in some not quite correct way here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's the idea of static analysis, is that you do the analysis based solely on the source code and the metadata that you have in front of you. So it's, one of the points is it's not at runtime, it's at compile time. It just looks at exactly. the source code. And among, yes. uh, among other things, that, that means that it doesn't know things like whether a left paren one, right paren is a function call or a uh, array lookup. or a, it, it, all, all it knows is what can be determined at, at compile time. Right. So this is, this is a, an important characteristic of languages and something that language designers think about very, very hard, we mm-hmm. hope, is mm-hmm. what features of the language are amenable to static analysis and which ones are not. Right. I don't think language designers ever think about that, but 
<laughs> Thanks for giving them credit. <laughs> we we hope we hope that they do. I think possibly uh, the designers of Haskell thought about that, but uh, no other language. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's certainly something we thought about very carefully for for C sharp. Um, okay, you know. that's fair. That's fair. So so anyway, that's the idea of, of static analysis, and Coverity makes tools that do static analysis of uh, C, C plus plus, Java, and C sharp. Uh, and they do a much, much deeper static analysis than compilers do. And they have, uh, you know, a sort of a heuristic engine that looks at all of the code paths and tries to figure out if, uh, if there are code paths that contain bugs. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the great things about Stack Overflow is it is a rich source of buggy code. <laughs> no, thanks. So, <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so while looking at people's questions, you know, something that is, you know, always in the sort of forefront of my mind now is if somebody has a program that doesn't work the way they think it should and they've asked about it on Stack Overflow, could I write uh, a heuristic that would, that would say, hey, this program doesn't do what you think it does? Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. And then show them the Stack Overflow question that answers their, <laughs> their problem. That, Which that was would, closed that is would, not constructive. Yeah, yes, that, yeah. that has crossed my mind a, a number of times. Right? Huh. Because in, in all seriousness, one of the great difficulties of writing static analyzers is how do you present the defect to the, uh, to the, the developer in a way that they can understand it. Yeah. Right? Because some of these defects involve... You know, sort of tortuous paths through the code that you would not expect to take, but when you do take them, they end up dereferencing null or, or or whatever, some some such thing. Right. And particularly the ones that involve concurrency are quite difficult yes. to uh, to explain. So, if there was some way to say, "Hey, you should just go to this Stack Overflow question about this guy who had the same problem as right. you," uh, that, that would be great. But you I could don't detect think that. somebody trying to use uh, regular expressions to parse HTML. Hmm. For example, <laughs> for example, that should, yeah, that should be that should be possible. Or somebody anyway. trying to yeah. trying to uh, program on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but the first one yeah. is a is a fail. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> or in, in all seriousness, you can you can detect people who are trying to uh, sanitize inputs uh, to strip the HTML out of them, right? Yeah, uh, and then you can say, it's "Oh, you safe. know what? Looks like either maybe a you haven't done a good job of of sanitizing this HTML, or b that's that's evidence that maybe we should be looking at this code path for cross site scripting or for SQL injection or or whatever." Mm -hmm. Interesting. So your initial reasoning for kind of getting active is does not meet my unified theory of why people would do it. My, my general, the general answer I actually give people at the end is I say, well, almost everyone, programmers, I think even more so, but almost everyone you know either likes to genuinely likes to help people or likes to show off how smart they are. And many people like both. And that they oh, bo both those things are true of me. No, I know, but you actually had this strategic. Yours falls somewhere between like I genuinely wanted to learn and my boss made me, which is a whole different. Uh, so, um, and what I would say is people get started that way, right? They want to, they want to, someone doesn't know something or said something wrong and they can correct it and show off how much they know and kind of demonstrate their skill. Or they just really like to feel like they did something for someone. And then what I say is that the system that, that, you know, dumb, the points don't matter system and the fact that it opens up something, even though something you wouldn't think is a value, what it does is it reinforces. So if you like to feel like you were smart or you like to help people the difference is you can keep going back and you can keep seeing a number increment that says another person said you were helpful, right? Or another person right. said you're really, really smart. And that the system really gives you this tangible feedback um, on a thing you sort of already cared about. It wouldn't work by itself if you didn't care, but its meaninglessness doesn't interfere with its ability to measure 
something you're interested in. But so my question today is, so and you just crossed 200,000 not long ago. Do you know offhand roughly what your Stack Overflow score is? Do you, do you go back and see how many upvotes you got, or do you pay less attention to that now? Uh, I pay almost no attention to the raw score. Uh, I noticed that I got over 200,000 points when you guys sent me a sweater. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was great. Thanks. I wear it all the time. I do keep a fairly close eye on, you know, were the, the answers that I wrote actually helpful? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, one, like you say, it's, you know, it's just gratifying to know that you've helped somebody. Uh, and, and two, you get a sense about what problems are important to people when uh when you see which ones get a lot of attention and which ones don't yeah so, so we have some uh some well sort of listener questions we have listener questions the listeners are not actually listening we, well we tweeted out earlier today questions for for eric lippert that we're having him on the podcast tweet your questions so some interesting ones almost all of the i mean not terribly surprisingly they're almost all about c sharp which you know you, you don't really work on the compiler anymore but or the language anymore but um and you probably heard some of these so the first question is uh if you could change one thing in c sharp and have a genie fix up all existing code what would you change uh, do i just get one well we can i mean I can, I can i can think you of, of half a dozen without uh you know w- without taxing uh taxing <laughs> well, my you're, mind you're gone from microsoft a few weeks you're already tearing up c sharp man i don't know <laughs> Oh no no! So, so <laughs> every sure. uh, every year there is a uh, there's a conference that is you know at the the conference center in downtown Seattle that is only for Microsoft employees. And what happens is all of the uh, the field workers, right, the people who are technical evangelists and you know salespeople and whatnot, uh, come in and they get briefed by the you know research and development teams about what's coming next. And they get to talk to the team and ask questions and whatnot. Um, it's super fun. And every year that the C-Sharp team does that, somebody asks, if you could fix one thing in the C-sharp language without consequences, <laughs> what, what would you fix? So I've heard this question many, many times. We didn't promise they'd be original questions. So. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's, that's why it's so easy to tear it apart, right? They're all small things, but they're all really irksome. So, you know, one that kind of my, my worst pet peeve uh, is unsafe array covariance, which is uh, kind of a highfalutin, you know, category theory word. But basically, if you have uh, an array of turtles, mm-hmm. you can cast that thing to an array of animals, right? And then you can put a giraffe into it. Mm-hmm. And at runtime, it says, hey, you thought that was an array of animals. You thought you could put a giraffe into it, but it's actually an array of turtles, and we're going to crash. Mm. So it's a place where the, the static analysis of the language fails, right? Because you should be able to statically determine you know, that, that this value is not assignment compatible with this variable. This, uh, you know, array locations are variables. Uh, they vary. And even worse, uh, it means that every time you insert an element into an array that is of uh, a non-sealed reference type, the runtime has to do a check to see, right. is this array actually of the type that it says it is? Right? So it makes all array accesses slightly slower. slower. Yeah. So that this one crazy feature that hardly anybody uses will work. I don't even program about giraffes or turtles. I've never had a giraffe or a turtle. <laughs> well, it also really... applies to dogs and cats. You uh, see, right? Not, I think your most, I think one of your most popular questions on Stack Overflow is about a turtle. <laughs> that is actually, true. Smart guy. <laughs> that's true. That's a logo turtle. Dude. Okay. okay, so that's your number one. What's your number two? What's my number two? Oh, good lord! There are so many to choose from. This is where it gets interesting. The fact that uh, nullability and non-nullability was not baked into the type system from the beginning. Ah, uh, yeah, that was a bad thing to add later. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the type system began with uh, nullable reference types and non-nullable value types. And then nullable right. value types were added. Right. Nullable, non-nullable reference types will probably never be added. It's too late now. Non-nullable reference types. Uh, yeah. Meaning a, a reference that always has to be assigned to something. Right. So that, that you, a, you say, yeah. oh, this is a non-nullable string, and you are guaranteed that a variable of type non-nullable string always has a string in it. There's always right? some and, string there, yeah. Uh, and that's the real problem, is you want your type system to provide an ironclad guarantee. The reason this always bugged me is that there's like that impedance mismatch between databases and, and the language that always generated a lot of extra code. Right. So every time you pull something from a database, it's there's 10 lines in there instead of just kind of an assignment sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While you go through and fix up the slightly different way that the database is storing things and that your language is storing things. Right, right, and and nullability is a is a big part of that because right. of course you know databases have this notion Often that the data yeah. can be null. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, that that's my uh, that's my lesson to you all is uh, the next time you design a type system, mm -hmm. design it with nullability and non-nullability baked into it as key concepts from the beginning. Hmm. Got it. That's that. a, I'll keep yeah. that in mind. Yeah. So that's that's tip number two from from Eric. Number one that's was right. was the thing about being a, an expert in your field or something. That that seems less important though. <laughs> Next user question is: If you are an ice cream cone, what's the worst thing you ever saw Bill Gates do? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible I misread it, but I still think it's a valid question. Uh, you you know when uh, when you work at Microsoft. People ask you three questions, or at least they used to when I when I started. Have you ever met Bill Gates? Yes. Are you a millionaire? Oh yeah. Have you ever met Bill Gates? And can you fix my computer? <laughs> <laughs> and you've you've only been out of the company for for a short time, but the can can you fix my computer one takes a that's long a, time. That's to actually go away. that's actually why we had you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, we've got an issue that actually, we yeah, really we got we got we talked to Clippy, we restarted, neither worked, uh, but now you're here. And we, have right. high we have high hopes. Yeah, well, and that's, that's one of the strange things about working uh, at Microsoft on languages, because I have worked essentially only on languages. I worked briefly on uh, Visual Studio Tools for Office, but mm -hmm. that's, I kind of took the, I worked on the plumbing side of it, which had to solve a lot of the same problems that you solve in compilers. And as a result, I have never written a Windows program. You know, all of the programs what? that I write, text goes in and bytecode goes out the other end, right? The Seriously? only Windows functions I ever call are open this file and, and, and that's it. But surely you call create file you do using the Windows API function, not in just open. No, this oh, is sure. Eric Lippert you're talking to. Come on. He, does, yeah. he doesn't what? use the, the API. You don't have to use sure. the Windows 32 API? He just, he right. just, he just needs to call create. Yeah. But the, the number of times that I have needed to make... You know, yeah. a message loop, a Windows message loop in one of you know one no. of my programs. Professionally, I could probably count on the fingers of one hand. <laughs> so I I know very very little about Windows Windows programming uh, or you know maintenance of of Windows machines. You know, I I am no better at hooking up my uh, my wireless network than uh, well than my mom. That's <sighs> interesting because there's actually kind who's of not, a, who's not a technical. That's person sort of another impedance mismatches between. The needs of uh, event-driven um, user interface programming and the pro the languages that are provided for them. So there was always some funny thing going on. I mean, to take an old school example, Visual Basic would map events to you know, like operating system events, like the mouse has just moved down to particular function calls by using a, a 
syntactic notation where it was, you know, the name of the object and then an underscore and then the name of the event. And that was actually hidden from you by the editor. So it just sort of looked like there, there was just sort of this mismatch between what the language facilities provided and what you needed uh, to do event-driven programming. Yeah, and we uh, we preserved that in uh, in VBScript, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and actually made it right. uh, a requirement right, that you name your event handlers using that uh, yeah. using that naming scheme. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, little little known fact, uh, I added a syntax to JavaScript uh, to do the same thing, so that you could hook up VB style events uh, in in JavaScript. Which is actually kind of going backwards because there's sort of the the Visual Basic idea was look, we'll just say that underscore blah blah means whatever, and then I think in both in Java and in C sharp, there was sort of a tendency to say, oh, you can actually hook up any method that you want to handle your event. So you kind of have to go through and hook them up. Right. And then there was sort of a trend to go backwards. And, and I think Ruby, uh, Ruby on Rails specifically was sort of the first place you saw this more reactionary trend of saying, let's just have a, a convention. You know, it's okay if you have to name your, your function a certain way for it to handle a certain right. event. That's, there's no need to have the flexibility of being able to hook up any arbitrary function, any arbitrary event. Um, that just creates all this maintenance scaffolding code. Right. So let me so let me ask a question about you. You made a, a obviously a big big switch now, a big switch recently, I should say. I'm intrigued a little bit by what you found that you sort of like best and have found most frustrating going from a, I'd say a big company to a, to a smaller company. I, I just made a similar switch recently, and it's uh, it's, it's very, the scale makes a bigger difference almost than I think any other change. That that is certainly true. You know, Coverity is a uh, is a much smaller company, obviously, than Microsoft, which is you know behemoth. How many employees at Coverity? You know, it changes from day to day because they are hiring so quickly right now, but it's on the order of 250. That's a little bit smaller than Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, which is like 90,000, 100,000, yeah. So, you know, it is it is certainly uh, the case that it's different working at a, a smaller company. You know, um, I can walk into the vice president's office anytime I want. Well, aside from the fact that he's in San Francisco and I'm in Seattle. But, uh, <laughs> it's a long it's a walk. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, but you could. <laughs> a bike would be better. But yeah, the, uh, the organization is, uh, is you know, much smaller and flatter, and you, you can very quickly get to know uh, everybody in it. Whereas you know, at Microsoft... Uh, one of the things that um, that I noticed after having worked at Microsoft for many many years was, I was actually knowing fewer and fewer people as time went on, and and not more and more, because hmm. there were just so many new people in the division. Old people were leaving. Yeah, and it, I I feel like here, you know, I I can have uh, a big impact on the the future of the company, right? Yeah. Yeah, at Microsoft, I could have a big impact on the future of the C sharp language, which is great. You and, know, I'm, and I'm certainly big. not uh, denigrating that in in any way. Yeah, but uh, it it feels it feels different working for a, a smaller company and knowing that you know all of the work that you do directly impacts the uh, the bottom line in a in a pretty clear way. Yeah. Um. So that's so that's pretty nice. One of the things that I was a bit surprised about uh, about changing companies was not so much going from a large company to a small company, but from going from a, a company 
that is, for obvious reasons, steeped in sort of the Windows development, uh, the, all the mechanisms of Windows development, you know, Visual Studio and mm-hmm. C Sharp and Visual Basic and, and all of those, uh, to a company that came out of uh, static analysis of uh, C code largely targeted towards the embedded systems mm-hmm. market, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the C code that runs on you know, microwaves or the Mars lander or, you know, wh- whatever, right? Joel's the stuff beeper. that is, yeah, or beepers, huh? yes, stuff beeper. like that, right? Where beeper. the code really has to be yeah. correct because it's very expensive to ship a patch, right? right. And so that's, that was Coverity's initial sort of core market. And so they come out of a world that is very much, you know, sort of the more traditional Unix development. Mm-hmm. And I have not worked on, uh, you know, developing Unix software since I was a student at Waterloo. And I was a little surprised to discover that it really has not changed much since no, then. I know, yeah. I know. You still run Emacs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've started using VI again. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, fortunately, it's all still in my fingers. It's fun. But, you know, one thing I often compare it to is that the Microsoft world where the development tools are generally paid for and there's sort of corporations that are involved. Everything's a little bit more luxurious. So it sort of feels yeah. like, I don't know, it feels like business class travel or it feels like having a Buick, right? Where there's a, a you know, electric windows and there's a, all kinds of beat warmers and that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's the Visual Studio experience. And then you go off into sort of Unix world and there are heat warmers, but you have to buy them separately and stick them under your seat and they work better but sometimes they burn you because they work so well. Sometimes, they, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they don't have, there's just all these like little luxuries that you sort of imagine you associate with like a Lexus or a Buick, like that kind of car, a Cadillac, but you can't feel the road. And then kind of get back into the Unix world and everything's a Jeep Wrangler and it's four wheel drive. And there's all kinds of third party add-ons and things you build for yourself and stuff you solder for yourself onto the car. And it's oh, all yeah. ugly as crap. Yeah. Uh, and if something goes wrong, open up the hood. Yeah, yeah. And if something goes wrong, you, 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 your neck gets cut off the first time, and the second time, uh, your neck gets cut off. <laughs> your neck gets cut off again. And, and uh, uh, it's, it, uh, on the other hand, you're kind of working with power tools, so it's a little bit more... It's just a very different... Which is why your field. neck keeps getting cut off. Yeah. The, Joel, uh, right. That's why Joel's not allowed thing. around power tools. Power tools, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, we're sort of running out of time in the podcast, but David, you had mentioned that you have some stuff. I want to steer the podcast a little bit towards the oh. uh, subject of... We had one, one quick announcement, news. Okay. which was just, um, we have a new site. That's not, it's been in public beta for a couple weeks now, but okay. uh, it's Sustainable Living. What? Yeah. Do I have to type that into the URL bar? Uh, I think it's sustainability. Sustainability.stackexchange.com. Okay. Look at that. Are electric cars as environmentally friendly as we think they are? Okay. When do you know you're generating too much waste? That doesn't seem like it has a good answer. All right. I'm, I'm already worried about this site. How can I be more energy efficient in an apartment? That's a... Uh, all right. Can we close this site down before we, before we do the podcast? That's our, was that our only announcement? No, we cannot. <laughs> let's right, let's start with the answer to that question. For those of you on the sustainability site, get in there and ask some real questions. Here's a good one. Would monocrystalline or polycrystalline solar panels perform best in the UK climate? There you go. That's hmm. it. That sounds like a real question. Yeah, and I think you, you glossed over that the apartment one, I think, too quickly. I actually think that's a decent question because what they're getting at is a lot of the kind of headline things that people do to make more sustainable, greener homes require you to own them, right? Installing solar panels, et cetera. What they're, 
you have to you have to like live in a suburb and drive to work every day before you even have an opportunity to save uh, emissions on uh, by not driving to work. Right. That they're that they're the things that most people are focused on in getting uh, more energy efficient don't apply. Right. Solar panels, changing car types, et cetera, don't apply when you live in a tiny apartment in New York City. What are the things you can do to change your footprint? I think there's actually some some pretty solid answers. There. I thought that was a pretty good question. OK. People gave kind of good bullet point check off list. I think the site the site's off, I'd say to a slow start. There, there's definitely I think they're they're getting some good quality questions. They've got an engaged community. Probably not as much the activity's not uh continuing to grow at a pace we'd like to see. There's always a little bit of a drop off, I think, after the initial surge. Mm-hmm. But um we'd certainly like to see more people in there. And, so if you're uh, listening to this podcast, get in there on sustainability.stack.com and ask us your questions about electric cars in, in apartments. And don't forget to recycle or in New York you'll get arrested. Mm. Okay. Uh, and then actually, so, so this, this site kind of leads us into one interesting meta question that we, we wanted to look at. So this is meta question 166566. On the site or on uh, meta, meta stack, stack overflow slash Q slash 166566, which is kind of a, it, it's not a. We forgot, a, we forgot the hat tip. We're doing hat tips now. Right? The question was asked. Question was asked. Mark Mayo. There we go. His last name is a condiment. <laughs> um, his first name is two in some countries okay anyway so he he's uh not coming from the perspective of stack overflow coming from the perspective of some of these smaller sites where somebody asks a good question and it gets uh, uh what he describes as not always useful but well-intentioned answers mm-hmm. by somebody who uh in his example uh Right. They don't really know the answer to your question, but they, you know, they had a, a brother-in-law who once did something similar, and it might be related. This is, uh, yeah, the Yahoo Answers. Yeah. Yahoo Answers. I heard about this once, and it made well, me sad. Well, this is sad. what you're supposed to do in real life, right? So if the three of us were standing around at a bar without access to the Book of Knowledge on a smartphone, and one of us said, hmm, what, bar, what bar are we at? Uh, we are at Industry. Cool. I don't yeah. know what that is, but that sounds cool. I it's, bet I couldn't even get in there. I like it. Uh, no, you'd get in. Okay. 52nd and uh, 52nd between 8th and 9th in New York City. And, go <laughs> you don't know what kind of bar I want to go to, Producer Alex. I know you don't want to go to that one. <laughs> very very no, quick to presume. That is, that is a fine Okay, so we're in bar. a bar. <laughs> you and Jay yeah. and me and Eric. Right. And we're talking about, uh, we're, we're like, let's say, for example, a problem that I'm facing today. I want to bring over a summer intern from Portugal. And I don't know what kind of visa he's going to need and whether he's going to be able to get one. So you don't, we don't have uh, smartphones because actually you don't get very good reception on, on Verizon in that bar. So um, true. And, and so, that's, why, that's why Alex <laughs> thinks I won't like it there is I like to have reception all the time. And they don't have good reception. Yeah, you have yeah, a smartphone. Exactly. Yeah, right. And so you say, you know, I don't know that. But when I was in Brazil, <laughs> I had a visa that was just a tourist visa that I had to apply for on the Internet. And I say, that's interesting. So you've carried forth the conversation. You've done something that's a totally social thing. This is a social thing to do, right? right? Like, you have to say something. You can't just say, I know, no idea. Say something you believe to be true that is as related as is possible to what's being talked about, which may not be terribly related. Right, right. Or you could say something like, hey, I wonder if there's a Portuguese embassy in New York. Maybe they they can answer that question. When really the answer is you need to go to the American embassy in Lisbon to find out the answer to that. But okay. Either way, it's not an answer. Right. So... People will do that. They won't do that on Stack Overflow. There's too many questions, too much volume. They're not going to answer with just kind of random like, well, I don't know, but, but my cousin might know. Right. Well, this happens on a site where a question's sat unanswered for a few days. Yeah. And then somebody feels bad and they're like, well, I'll give yeah. you the best I've got. And there's two or three people that are on that site who are like, I really got to make this site work. I'm going to do everything I can to try to answer some, some questions. And th- this is actually, because this, this is really endemic of the 
sort of what you tend to get on those sites where there is no vertical, right? So we, we talk about Yahoo Answers and stuff, but the, the fundamental issue is oh, there's- it's all you get on, on Yahoo right, Answers. Right, there's people who are yeah. hanging out there who are interested in interacting and actually want to be yeah. useful. They answer everything. But they're there to talk about prom, yeah. and you're there to talk about auto mechanics, and so right. auto mechanicry, mechan okay. Me mechanism. Auto Mechanisms. Yeah. And so when you ask your auto car, they go, I don't know, but my daddy has a car, <laughs> and he drives it everywhere, yeah. and I'm hoping he'll take me to prom. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what I should wear? Even if you don't, I Wait. hope you solve your problem. They get a lot of hope you solve your problem. Your daddy's taking you to prom? Is that not what people do? Not, well, driving. Not, no, driving, driving you driving, off. Transporting not. you. Oh, Tra that okay. kind of, wow. No. That got weird fast. He's facilitating the oh, transportation sorry. to and I from the event. That's not, industry is um, not that kind let's, of Let's circle back. So the question is, well, the question is not, uh, obviously we, we recognize this is not a good answer, right? That, yeah. That's the premise of the question. The question is, what should we do about it? Oh, Wait, uh, have we talked about this? The, the well, the first, the first problem is you sh certainly shouldn't accept those, those not so good answers. That's one thing that happens is this, everything about our system is encouraging you to hit the little checkbox and accept the answers, but uh, you probably shouldn't. Right. In fact, I think ex accepting should have the highest bar. Like, I will sometimes yeah. ask a question and someone will give a kludgy workaround and I'll upvote it if it's the only answer. I'll say yeah. that helps, but it's really, I really yeah. wanted something more and native. This is a great place to But use I won't comments. accept. Yeah. I, accepting, I require usually that it really solves the problem in a manner that appears to be a good, clean one. Um, but even upvoting here is probably not right, right? They're trying to help, but it actually is not very helpful. Do we, do we talk about, a, do we use a specific example or do we only use my dumb, extreme, exaggerated example? We could, what? We can use a specific example. Sure, go ahead. So what's the example he used? It was a travel question, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought you had an example. No, there was an example in the question, no? Something about a visa thing. Mark Mayo's question. Oh, yeah. that was the, the Portuguese visa. The Portuguese visa. Yeah. It, but he just made up an example. It's not a real example. No, I think there really wasn't an example like that, actually. Tra Travel.stackexchange is full of that. Because uh, what will happen is that somebody will ask a perfectly legit question that does have an answer, uh, you know, about a bus from point A to point B, and just really nobody knows. And we just don't have enough volume to, to answer those. So let me say what I've been doing, and I'm not sure it's the right answer. So my, my general... One. What is the easiest way to go from Puno to La Paz through Lake Titicaca? Just you just wanted to, wanted to say Lake Titicaca. You tried not to laugh out loud, but you have a it's sheet a of paper in front of you. You have a notepad that says nothing but work in Lake Titicaca. That was your whole plan for this podcast, and there's nothing else on it. That's mm -hmm. not true. But what is true is there's a, a picture open on a desktop that uh, is a funny picture of huskies falling over that says, I forgot how to dog. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should put that in the show notes. That's, uh... So back to the question, what should you do? So I have to say, my hist historically, and I think this is wrong, I hadn't thought of it, but I was just a, re a regular old civilian user. Um, if I saw someone who was trying to help and gave a sort of related answer that wasn't factually incorrect, but wasn't really helpful, helpful. in any meaningful way, yeah. and it was the only answer historically i would ignore it um, yeah. what i would do is actually if i saw an answer like that it doesn't even answer well, the question but it's just like uh well i don't really answer to that but on the other hand buses in in ecuador are really good yeah i i, I what i actually this is i think wrong but what i used to do is i would downvote when there were other answers like when it's ranking was of question i would yeah. tend to downvote to ensure the order stayed right but the truth is if i saw someone trying to help and they were the only one and there were no other answers, I think historically I tend to ignore them, which may not be right. At the end of the day, if you know it's not going to be the right answer, you probably want to ensure it winds up under what is presumed, at least the next answer that comes, yeah. that we can uh, on average assume is more helpful. So the first thing is we're kind of hoping that you leave it at least, don't don't vote up that bad answer, God Certainly. forbid, because then it, get, if you've got something voted up, that's gonna knock it out of the unanswered, like the no answers right. list, right? Yep. And that's a, that's a bad thing, you, you've actually harmed the world by, by voting up something that's not an answer because you've caused 
fewer people to see the question. And you know, as we talk out loud, you, you know what yeah. I think the best answer, the best response that you definitely should do. So for, whether you're comfortable downvoting or not, or you should downvote or not, is a more nuanced question. Yeah. What you should do almost certainly is add a comment that reflects why, you, like, yeah. even if you're not the original asker, write a comment saying, Thanks for your effort. Yeah, right. Th thanks side. for trying. Awesome. But I, right. I think it's, it seems like you're really trying Doesn't to help really out. But I question. think the OP was looking for something that specifically spoke yeah. to blank. Yeah. yeah. Gives the right. Commenting is almost certainly the right action to take if yeah. you can. The outstanding question is, ought you downvote it versus leaving it alone? And yeah, I think. Downvote the hell out of that, baby. Would you? It, it depends on the. I mean, it depends on the answer. Yeah. If it's clearly not and not a good answer to this question, then downvote. I think this. I can see leaving it alone a, if, like it's a an, if it's if it's a yeah if it's a mediocre workaround, but that's you're still fine. waiting for the best answer. Yeah, a workaround that's a real genuine workaround is fine. Uh, so the, back to the visa question for a second. Yeah. I think if they said, "I've never gone into Portugal, but I've traveled to these four places," yeah. and in all cases, this would have worked. Yeah. I'd argue that's not a downvoted answer because oh, what that's they're dangerous. Well, but what they're giving you is more information. Well, I can't than you tell you how to get to started with Portugal. Well, but, but Brazil is easy. If it's the only answer, it gives you slightly more information than you had before about that specific situation. But well, that might be actually dangerous. So there's an yeah. interesting thing. There's an, another option here. So he, he's also asking, sort of from the perspective of a moderator, right, who has some additional options available to them. So he he actually asks two other things: uh, should it be converted to a comment? or should it maybe be deleted? Mm -hmm. So probably not deletion unless it's actively harming the, the internet, I would think. But the comment is kind of an interesting place. The comment on the question is an interesting place to kind of add additional information that's not really an answer, right? Uh, and you see that a fair amount, right? It's like, I, don't, I, can't, I can't fully answer this, but I'll, I'll give kind of one of the pieces along the way oh, in the a com comment. A comment to the question. Comment to the question, yeah. yeah. Which is just sort of like, let me get this down here because this might help somebody build an answer. Right. Like, I don't have time, but check out, have you, ch have you checked this source yeah. or look at this link? And so that's that's not a yeah. bad um, option for the, the person who wants to give a little bit more help or the moderator who's looking at this, trying to clean it up, maybe convert cool. it to a comment. All right. Uh, I think we're wrapping up. You've been listening to, what was this? Number 45. Number 45 what? This was the podcast. Podcast number uh, five. Oh. Okay. This has been the Stack Exchange Podcast. Your first name is Joel. 45. You should, you should print this on a little card that I have in front of me at all times. <laughs> Many thanks to Eric Lippert. Thanks for coming on, Eric. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Eric, thanks, uh, Eric, where do they find you? Uh, are you uh, do you have a domain name, a Twitter handle, any of that kind of stuff? Uh, I have a domain, uh, ericlippert.com. That's where I keep my blog nowadays. Uh, and I'm on uh, Twitter as well. And monad, monads. He's under, monads. He's under at monads. Eric Clipper T. You can find him. <laughs> Eric... Uh, <laughs> If you, uh, if you want to learn about monads, there's an interesting five-part series there, which you can read in reverse chronological order. David tried that. It didn't work. His brain blew up. Uh, started by reading part five and said he didn't understand. Then I read it. Then I read it in order, and it made plenty of sense. Oh, did it? It's actually oh, pretty, it's pretty. It's I very readable. Wall. I hit the wall at part three, but I, I'm an old man. Don't forget about me. If you want to learn about monads, it's a great place to go. It's called Fabulous Adventures in Coding, ericlippert.com. Thanks for being on, Eric. Uh, also, All right. special thanks to David and Jay and Alex who are here every week. And we'll see y'all uh, in uh, two weeks' time. How often do we record this? Is this a weekly Every other podcast? Week. Every other week, yeah. So, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another exciting episode of the Stack Exchange. Podcast. That one will be, uh, you know, we're about to move to a new Stack Exchange office. We are. No, but not quite. In the one in two weeks, we might still be here. Yeah, we'll be here. It's like yeah. right before the move. It's going to be, this place is going to be a trash dump because nobody's going to be cleaning it. They're going to be like, what's the point? We're, we're, we're moving out. Why, why even bother keeping it clean? We'll uh, probably we're just, just wreck it. Throwing candy bar wrappers on the floor. No, but you know, we're running out of candy because uh, our office manager is not reordering any of the candy because, you know, why have it shipped here? We're just move it. 
This is this place is really because gonna we go could run to out of hand handy. Exactly. <laughs> this place is Terrible. gonna go to hell in a handbasket long before. So yeah, episode forty-five. See you next week. Apparently, Eric Lippert is quite the fan of programmer Ryan Gosling and has even submitted entries <laughs> to programmer Ryan Gosling. I, I submitted one entry to programmer Ryan Gosling after uh, it was brought to my attention that one of the entries on it mentioned me. It, t- it does. It says, I really like how you use the visitor pattern to transform that immutable structure. We should grab some pizza at the .NET user group and talk about Eric Lippert's new blog post about async. <laughs> Girl. 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 <laughs> girl. Hey, girl.